Welcome to the Bard and Bible, a conversational devotional about scripture, life, and ministry from the perspective of a tabletop missionary still trying to figure out what those words actually mean when you string them together. There's a seat by the fire over there, and it looks like things are just about to get started. Tonight's tale, The Depth of Pride. Hello, friends and weary travelers. My name is Mike Perna, your resident dwarf bard, and it is my joy to welcome you here to the Bard and Bible. If you'll only give me a moment, it seems there's been a bit of trouble working out things with another one of our guests. Wait here, please. Shouldn't be but a moment. Hamish? Hamish, can you come here a minute? Aye, I can give you a minute, but nay, I take more. Supper serving soon, and you have my word. I'll be coming for you if my souffle falls. Yes, well, heavens forbid it. We have a party that's just arrived from a village up north. They seem to have some very specific requests, but sadly, I was ill-equipped to interpret those requests. So I was wondering if, you know, maybe, once you've done with your usual duties, if you wouldn't mind popping round the desk while I get their attention? You mean to tell me that you brought me out here from my fires to have the privilege to play translator for you? Isn't there a spell for that sort of thing? I mean, yes, comprehend languages can be brought to bear in this situation, but I assume that it would be much easier for all of us if you could just- Oh, aye. Let's just bring Hamish out to talk with him. He's mountain-born, isn't he? He'll set him right. Did you ever think that maybe, just maybe, in all the years I've been trying to drag the menu of this place beyond the pub nibbles and goblin excrement you used to serve, that I've been keeping up with my declensions, a modern, idiomatic dragon tongue. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got a dessert course to finish up. Well, serves me right for trying to save some time. Anyway, I guess I'll be showing you to your room. We're going to grab all oh, of your- That's my souffle flatter than tomorrow's pancakes! Room number three, up the stairs, on your left, can't miss it. Good night! I'm horrible with language. And that's a problem because language is the kind of thing that if you're not actively using it, it just leaves your head. So when you're already struggling with it, it becomes even more of a challenge to to retain that stuff when you have to work super hard just to get it in there in the first place. I took five years of German. I started at the tail end of middle school and all four years of high school. So five total years studying vocabulary, pronunciation, grammar. I, you know, by the time we were done, we were even doing like idiomatic speech so that we could have actual conversations with people instead of reading and writing like some kind of bad children's book when we talk to people. I, I've got none of it. I've got absolutely none of it. Okay, let's not be too hard on me. I do have the kind of phrases that you desperately need if you find yourself lost in a place. So I can do those, like, you know, where's the bathroom and that sort of thing. The kind of stuff that tourists use when they go traveling. And... Because I learned these things in middle school and high school, I, of course, remember all the curse words that I learned. Because, of course, those are the things that my brain held on to, the super useful things. Of course they did. And it's really frustrating, not only that, because 
there's lots of languages that I want to learn for different reasons. For I'd love to learn Italian for, you know, they, it's history in my family. I'd love to learn German because it's a fun language. It's a really interesting, fun language. I'd love to learn Spanish because, heck, a ton of people in the area know how to speak Spanish, and I'd love to communicate with them in their language. It'd be great. But the ones that are really frustrating to me, it directly impacts what I do here. I'm horrible at Greek and Hebrew. I got rid of a lot of my seminary books because the seminary books could have been a library unto themselves and I have enough books as it is. But one thing that I definitely kept were the language books because I always have to be doing that. I have to dive in and ask, what does this word mean in the Greek, in the Hebrew? Is there an English equivalent? Are there multiple English equivalents? Because if there are multiple, then the translators are making a decision and I need to evaluate whether or not their decision is correct. And it just, y'all, it just makes my head hurt. I, even with the tools, even with the study, even with the experiences I've had, it just makes my head hurt. So I'm going to say that I resonate really strongly when we start talking about the Tower of Babel, because if I suddenly, out of nowhere, couldn't communicate with the people I'm working with, the people I care about, uh, you know, all this, if I suddenly just, boom, I, I, we no longer have the ability to speak, it, it would... It would definitely ruin my day. But I wanted to look at a little portion of this that happens as it's been happening every time in this study so far. If for some reason this is the first episode you're listening to, we've been going through Genesis. And one of the things that I set out right out of the gate to do with this study is to look at Genesis and really make sure that I'm always remembering that God is not a force that's pushing these characters. He's not uh, uh, just the overarching inciting incident that makes the characters do what they do. God is a character in the story. Not only is he a character, he is the primary character. Because even when he's not actively acting, as, as far as the story's concerned, he's very much the whole point of this. The book of Genesis is, is a book about beginnings. It's the beginning of God's relationship with his people. It's the beginning of God's people. So, so when I started in on the story of Babel, I started, I started just quite frankly asking God, like, how do I see this? Not Strictly from a, a, this is the point of this, but to really just ask about the story of this. What am I not seeing? What do I, what have I missed when I flannel graph this and just say, oh, this is what the lesson is. And God came back with something that was really interesting to me. Sometimes he's like, like go from an entirely different angle, go from, that, that's why it, the, the time when we talked about Noah, it wasn't just, let, we didn't barely talk about the flood when I talked about Noah with you folks. So sometimes God does that. He says, just, just go from a different angle, look at the stuff that no one looks at. This time it was more, this, the obvious lesson that people take away from this is obvious for a reason. It's important. But what he kind of said after that was, 
it's not all of it. Definitely keep that and make sure that you drive that point home, but don't think that that's where it ends, because when God's a character, you ask questions about motivation. You ask questions not only of what is being done, but what isn't being done. What, what is going on here intention-wise as well as activity-wise? But before we can look at any of that, we do have to look at the text and read the story as it's presented to us in the book of Genesis. So we're going to go to Genesis 11, and we're going to read the first nine verses. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible to them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. I think the reason that the incredible amounts of pride that these people show here is the focal point of the constant retellings we do of this story is just the sheer audacity of it. I think the only person I would say who would nope harder in the face of God's commands is Jonah. And the only reason Jonah gets a leg up on these people is because Jonah is actively saying, I have heard what God wants me to do. I don't like what God wants me to do. I'm actively going to do the exact opposite of what God wants me to do. The acknowledgement that he's going so hard against God's commandment is the only thing that puts him above what these folks are doing right now. They are actively doing the exact opposite of what God has commanded them to do. Every step of their, their statement here is an affront to what God has wanted them to do. Or even more profoundly, it goes beyond denying an activity or a command and goes straight to being an affront to who God is in relationship to them and who they are in relationship to him. Let, let's just take a second, break this down. Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. Whether they're talking literally or metaphorically here, in both cases it's like, we'll do this, we got this, and we'll build it up to where God says he is because we don't even need him, we can be there too. And let us make a name for ourselves. You are made in the image of God, dude. The whole concept of the image of God, which is something that we've brought up in the past, is the idea that we are to represent God. It is not about making our name great or building a name for ourselves. It is about 
communicating God's glory and God's righteousness and God's awesomeness. His name is the one we need, not ours. And finally, we get the proverbial bow to wrap this up nicely. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We need to build a city. We need to make it strong. We need to have people fear us because otherwise we're just going to get tossed to the rest of the world. We're just going to be dispersed and cast out, you know, like God told us we should be doing willingly. And in fact, that's exactly what he wants us to do. Now, look, it's obvious to me why this becomes the focal point of our storytelling when we talk about Babel. It makes sense because it is such a, a, a powerful statement, and it's one that we can all resonate with to some degree or another. We all, through the course of our active day, whether it's in, in, in our families, in our jobs, in, heck, let's just call it, in ministry. If you're doing any kind of ministry work, how many times have you heard, I got to do this to make to make a name so I have a platform so I can share the love of God? Whether you're talking it with good intentions or bad intentions, it doesn't matter. It's really easy for us to put ourselves in the place of God. And therefore, it, you know, it, it, the sermon writes itself. So I, I said, okay, I don't want to deny that part of the story. That is there. And I do want us to sit on that for a minute. Take a minute and let's ponder that. The idea of, of how easy it is to put ourselves over God, to put our our talents, our skills in front of God and think that it's our doing when in fact all our talent, all our skill, all our stuff, every good thing comes from God. It's not our doing. And it's our job to represent him, not for us to be great. And it's so easy to do that, to say, like, like, I'm not doing it for me. I don't want to make myself, you know, glorified. I'm doing it so that, so that I can do what God wants me to do. Like God's not in the business of putting you exactly where you're supposed to be anyway. I want all of this to hit in this moment. I want all of us to, to think about this, but I also want to keep going because the story doesn't stop here. It's really easy to hand wave the rest of this and just be like, because of this pride, God judges the people and thus language. It's great from both the theological standpoint. It's great from a, a historical standpoint. Okay. This is why we have languages, why people talk differently. That's an interesting way of telling the story. I love that. But I want to remember that God is a character here. And while, yes, there is a judgment here, there's no doubt that you can look at this story and say, this is not God putting something on these people because of their pride and sin. Like, it's very much there. It does not shy from the fact that this is what God is doing to these people. But I want you to ask, what did God literally do? Because answering that question kicks us out of the pattern that we might fall into when we're reading this. It's a familiar pattern. God tells people to do a thing. People are stupid and don't do the thing. God brings a judgment telling people, no, seriously, you need to do the thing. People end up doing the thing. So it's really easy to see that pattern and just kind of take this and say, okay, 
That's God's judgment to get them to do the thing, in this case, to disperse and fill the earth. But I want to look at the nature of this judgment, because this is a God who already has dished out some pretty intense stuff, and when we start looking at the rest of the book of Genesis, we have only begun to see the harsh, intense judgments that God's going to speak on people for doing stuff that seems way less worth it than what these people are doing, standing with their fists in the air saying, we don't need God and we're going to build a tower that displays how little we need God. Like, if anybody needed to get knocked down a peg, it, it seems like it would be that. So let's take a look at what God actually says here, because I think the fact that we don't get the biblical smackdown here has a lot to show us that we need to look at these details in order to see. Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible to them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. It can be really easy to feel really awkward about that statement that God just made, because it seems on the surface that he is capitulating to these people. Here they are, fists raised to the heavens, saying, We don't need God, we're going to build this city for ourselves. We're going to build a tower in that city that reaches up to the heavens as a monument to how little we need God. But let's take a look at some of God's other judgments, shall we? Some things that we have yet to see. When Egypt starts messing with God's people, God brings some judgments. Judgments in the form of plagues, and those plagues, if you really break them down... Each one of them spits in the face of an Egyptian god. Oh, you like to worship that thing? I'm going to show you how little that thing actually has to do with any of this in light of me. Let's look at my one of my favorite Bible stories of all time. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I've mentioned them before. I'm going to keep mentioning them. I love this story. Here's God's man. No, no, you go first. And as this elaborate, painful, awful display of, of blood and shouting goes out in front of him, here's God's man. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Shout a little louder so he'll hear you. God loves to use sarcasm to really bring home the point that he is the one in charge. He is the one that has all the power here. And he is the only one you ever need to listen to. So if you have that framework, let's look at this again. Oh yeah, no, you guys are fully powerful. There's nothing you could ever dream of that you're not going to be able to do. Oh, hey, so maybe I'm going to change your language now. I said that I thought that this judgment was kind of a lame duck judgment in the face of every other thing that God can, can do to somebody to really get them on the right track, or to punish them for not doing what he wants. But that's kind of the point here, isn't it? God's looking at these people going, you realize how little I have to do to utterly dismantle everything you're doing here. There's so little that I need to do 
to just bring it all down. Now, I am bringing some stuff in the margins here that's not clearly stated in the text, but look at it. As soon as God says, all right, we're just going to make it so they can't understand each other. What the text literally says after that is, so the Lord dispersed them from the, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. This was not some intense, forceful dispersal. This is not God smiting the land so they couldn't build it there anymore. I mean, we just got done hearing about how God flooded the earth. He might have promised that he wasn't going to do that again, but I'm pretty sure that a God who could pull that off could come up with some really creative, fun ways to make sure that this particular spot is incredibly untenable for building your project. He also didn't do anything to physically harm the people so that they couldn't do it. The, everybody who had the ability to make bricks or fashion walls or, or make plans, these people all had those abilities still. It's just, it's inconvenient now that they can't just talk to each other. Look, even as a guy who opened this up admitting that if I was forced out of nowhere to go working with people who I couldn't communicate with using my words, it would be hard and challenging, and I would not find it easy to fix that problem. Guess what? There are other ways to communicate besides language. I can use gestures. I can can draw pictures. I can do all manner of things that don't require shared language. Heck, even in situations where it would seem that it would be utterly language dependent. I mean, what I do with the ministry is based off of the experiences built when we're playing games together. Games have rules and elements that, that absolutely require language. But even then, I know of at least one game that I use on the regular with people who we don't share a language with. Liar's Dice. Yeah, it's awkward. I wish I could just explain this is how you play this game. But if I couldn't do that, I can still, through a series of, of gestures and, and, and explanations with my hands, I can tell people how to do that without language. It's just hard. It's frustrating because you have the word right there in your head. And you know that if you, you could just say that word, then everything would be fine and we would just move on to the next step. But we can't. So you have to create new concepts and you have to try over and over again, because when you're literally trying to rewrite your whole basis of communication, you're not going to do it right the first time. And so you have to be learning new concepts all the time and be willing to just be wrong or do something that you don't mean to do in, in the journey to get to where you're trying to be. And, Man, it just seems so much easier to turn to somebody who already just has the word. You can get to the good part right away. You can get to the part where you're enjoying what you're doing. You're sharing something immediately. And that's, that's the point, isn't it? See, there is the vertical part of this story that we all resonate with because we've all been there. We've all put ourselves in the place that only God can reside. And we know how foolish that is, and we understand how stupid it is to, to think that, that we're somehow better at being God than God is. Like we get that. But we've also all had a collection of stories about how we did it. Heck, 
I know for me personally, I've had plenty of stories about how I've done that, trying to do what God wants me to do, but doing it in a time or a manner or a place that God doesn't want me to. So that's, that, that is easy to, to grab hold of, to understand this other part though. You only see it when you realize just how little God had to do for Babel to fall. He just had to make it hard enough that we didn't think it was worthwhile to learn how to talk to each other. And I think we need to recognize just how little he had to move that bar before we collectively threw up our hands and said, I'm done with this. I want to go back to a place where it's comfortable for me to be able to just talk without worrying about what I'm saying. I don't want to be comfortable when it carves whole swaths of people out of my life. I don't want to be comfortable when it means that there are, are so many new experiences that I'll never have because they're hard. I don't think you do either. I think it's time, especially after the year that we've all had, that we realize that we all need to work a little harder. Because maybe God has put us in a place where we need to rely on Him. We also need each other. And I, I just think that it's time we get to work. And we're going to be about that work here. At least we're going to try. And sometimes we'll get it wrong, and sometimes we won't. Sometimes we'll look foolish. Sometimes I'll use incredibly silly voices that don't make any sense and make me look like a, a goofus. But we're going to keep trying because the work is worthwhile. And I hope you'll come back to be part of it with us here at the Barden Bible. <laughs>